episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Natalie Jane Imbruglia and I went to high school together. One of us went on to building a career, putting bits of food on bread and flogging it off as glamorous canapes, while the other went on to starring in Neighbours, selling more than 10 million albums worldwide, having a hit song that everybody knows the lyrics to, and most recently performed on stage at a Coldplay concert. In the early years post high school, our daily train catch-ups, Nat and I would exchange letters, but life being life, we lost contact. On separate continents and very different world stages, our life experiences somewhat mirrored one another's. We loved what we did and we worked hard at it, often our own toughest critics. Our careers took us to extreme highs and dragged us through some very, very deep lows. Meeting our great loves early in life, we taught ourselves to walk the planet once more, whole and complete, without them. And with a little help from social media, we reconnected over starting our families as solo parents. For most of you, Natalie's music is buried deep in your bone marrow, forever connecting you with a soundtrack to your life. So here with the tenacious beauty who once got smashed on unconsecrated wine with a bunch of seminarians at a religious high school retreat. She's the gatekeeper of all my secrets, so I better shut my trap. Hello, sweetheart. Welcome. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. I love you. Thanks for having me. So tell me what happened when your parents found out that uh, you had been drinking alcohol on the religious excursion. Can I start off by saying we did not plan to be naughty. We had very good intentions for this excursion. I remember us all talking at school about our intention of really wanting to do this trip. (laughs) And I guess we didn't plan on this incredible seminary with these massive high ceilings and checkered floors. And I just remember us running through and it was very dreamlike. And I guess we were so excited we couldn't sleep and we got hungry. So down we went to look for some food, happened to find some wine (laughs) that I have a feeling might have been extremely high percentage alcohol, but um, one thing led to another and next thing you know, we were drunk and down by the sea. Then your parents found out. Well, basically, I think, you know, we we came back into where we were staying and some of us had sand in our hair and obviously didn't wake up on time, so Secret was out and they separated us all and interviewed us and I guess that's where my acting career began. And, um, yeah, they weren't happy. 
Well, mum was a school principal, so it's not a good look. (laughs) Look, there's two other stories I want to talk about with you. Keep it clean. One, One in particular is your early childhood career objectives. Okay. What were they? My memory is singing into a hairbrush. Like I don't remember not knowing what I wanted to do or be. I famously, my mum told me this story that I said, because they had a plant nursery and there was a hairdressing salon down the road in Long Jetty. When people were getting perms, I would hand the, you know, the roller things. The rollers with elastic, with the rubber clips. Yeah, I was the assistant. I was, you know, hadn't started school yet. And I said, I want to be a hairdresser through the week and a star on the weekends, apparently. Well, that's very practical. <laughs> I guess <laughs> because I guess I realised there's no there was going to be no money in the music industry. Yeah, well, it was, you think about it. During the week, you do everyone's hair, and then when everyone's out on the weekend, you can perform. But there's another story that took place around about the same time. Mum Maxine did not allow chewing gum in the house, but oh, you were given some money to go and buy some ice cream. Oh, uh, at the plant nursery. Yes. So I, I think I picked an ice cream, a, a bubble bill, and it had ch- chewing gum in it. So that's how I got around that one. And then I was making a necklace out of it and it got stuck all, it, it, the chewing gum, and it got stuck in the back of my hair. There's a lot of hair stories. <laughs> there was another time my dad um, owned a news agency in Lakemba and I was... They had this beautiful woman called Michelle with long, long, beautiful, straight black hair. And I was like, let me comb your hair. And I just like twisted the comb in such knots all the way up to the top that they had to cut a chunk of her hair out. (laughs) Poor Michelle. Was it you that said um, vanilla is not a flavour? Someone in our friendship group that was like, vanilla is so not a flavour when it came to ice cream. Was that you? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Because there is really nothing vanilla about you, is there, if we're really <laughs> frank? <laughs> I love that. Vanilla is not a flavour. The last couple of months, you've been super busy. I mean, you've had a really huge Northern Hemisphere summer performing in every festival under the sun. Most recently, the Foodies Festival in Oxford. Well, that was the last one of the run. And uh, the day before, I'd been at Carfest which was like a sea of people. And in my job, like you go to different venues, different places, it's like a proper gear change. And I think something I learned very young, probably performing at Gosford Shopping Centre, <laughs> that whether you're performing to one person or 100,000, you have to learn to give a good performance. So we got to Foodies and it was a tiny stage and I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is this is a real gear change from from yesterday and the sun was setting it was absolutely beautiful and there were so many people and everybody knew every word and I had the most incredible last show there was just so much love and it just reminded me that I would do this job if I was singing to two people in a pub like I just love it a a dear friend of mine soon to be Dr Meg Hibbins has just finished a three-year PhD on music festivals she says there's a freedom, a, a freeness, a sense of bacchanalia about these festivals, you know, big crowds, all there for the same reason, huge community, having fun in the sun, rocking it out with their, with their favourite artist. 
What's it like performing for these surging crowds? Do you experience that, that, that same sort of freedom the crowds do? 100%. I mean, it's quite a selfish thing because often you'll see me on stage with my eyes closed. I'm literally blissed out. Before a show, I'm incredibly nervous. I have not found a way, even through meditation, to eradicate that and you realise that you're not meant to. So questions before a show, it's very hard for me to process. <laughs> it kind of feels like I'm being screamed at and it might be like, do you want a burger or a pizza after the show, whatever. And I'm like, why are you screaming at me? Like you're, you're kind of in this weird altered state where everything speeds up. Um, and I find that hard because I really want to be laid back and I'm really not. But I've also come to learn that part of what my gift is and part of what helps me to to do what I do is that sensitivity and that nervous energy and all of those things it's like a spiritual thing really my intention is that people have a good time and that I'm spreading joy and spreading love which might sound a bit hippie but as you know I am an old hippie and so it really is that for me and it really is a joint experience once I get on stage and kind of come down into my body I'm just having the best time and I love making eye contact and with everybody and seeing, you know, kids on on parents' shoulders and, you know, making them feel special and waving to the point where sometimes I start waving and then everyone puts the kid on the shoulders. I'm like, oh, my God, now I've got to wave to everyone and then I'm going to forget the words. And then when I start to get self-conscious, I just go back into my heart and remember, like, what am I singing about? And then I go back into the bliss of it. So it's quite, it's a beautiful thing. But that must take a lot of energy, that in and out of your body on stage and having to deliver and perform and be there for everyone and engage. How do you, how do you keep it up? I think it's because I've been on stage since I was very, very young. Also just the training of being on stage as a dancer from a young age When you're doing your Steadfords and things like that, it was terrifying as a child because the bright lights, you can't see the audience. So very young, (laughs) I had some quite intense (laughs) teachers that I I had. Margaret Zare on the Central Coast, shout out to you because you were amazing. And she was much more warm fuzzy. And then Robin Dixon in Sydney, which was like a step up, but I was doing professional dance shows and that was a little bit later on. You know, that's where you have that respect for a teacher that's quite strict and severe and some people can't handle it. But some for someone like me, she made me better. I understood that. And so it would be like, get out there and smile. And so you had that you learnt to kind of use that that fear and you were taught very young how to overcome that and, and still look relaxed. I'll never forget also... My tap dance teacher, Miss Di, these are all people that have crafted, you know, what I do from a very young age. I just remember one day, it was Tanya, Tanya Highland, and she used to get all the solos. And one day she said she had Tanya do her solo performance and everyone wanted to be Tanya. And, you know, it's like teacher's pet kind of thing. And she said, look, watch when Tanya dances. Look at her smiling. None of you smile. And she'd give these incredible, you know, lectures where she'd be like, you know, you just go through the moves willy-nilly. That is performing. So, you know, when you're a kid and you're taking this very seriously, I was like, right, 
I want to get her attention. <laughs> so ask my mum and dad. I had a plank of wood in the garage and I practised my time step over and over and over again and like because I and, and I used to then start smiling in class and everything and you know because I wanted to get that reward from my teacher so I think if you if you look back all of these things help with how I know how to overcome those anxieties and look so relaxed on stage well look so relaxed on stage let's kind of go from all those early memories and let's fast track it without giving away your age a couple of decades why would you not give away my age I'm very proud (laughs) 47 everyone 47 there you go loud and proud Loud and proud. Let's just go to the performance with Coldplay at Wembley Arena a few weeks ago. How many people were in the auditorium? We were kind of trying to work that out. Was it eighty three or ninety thousand? We can't ninety thousand. I think you. I think you said there was a little corner where there was no people, but that's just because they'd crammed. There was a the section that there was nobody there. <laughs> it was. It was sold out. There was a moment where you threw your arms in the air, and I thought you were going to bust out a chorus of "Wing Beneath My Wings." Um, that was seriously goosebump material. I've never been moved by a performance from you like that ever before. Like it was just the way that the audience was script. How did that feel? Look, I think I got there and I'm, I'm, I'm an original Coldplay fan. I used to be at their earliest shows and everything. So I'm normally nervous just with excitement to see the show. And I just was so grateful and excited like a five-year-old to be there. But what I noticed is, you know, if you're on the stage and the audience is in front of you, there's a real pressure to deliver. But when you're on a round stage, I was on the acoustic stage in the middle of the crowd and the audience is all up and arced around you and it actually felt like a hug. So I wasn't, once I got up there, I was so relaxed And I just thought this is such an opportunity of like with everything going on in the world, you know, I just wanted us to be together and to be in joy and spread love. And so I think that was my overwhelming feeling. Take this in, be in the present moment. Like this is so wonderful. You you speak about um, being an audience member and performing. I mean, you haven't lost the magic of, of being an audience member, do you? It's still quite exciting watching other people perform and, and going to shows. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I'm still a fangirl of Coldplay. And also while we're at Soundcheck, he said, oh, yeah, and uh, by the way, uh, Jacob Collier's coming to, <laughs> to play. <sighs> and, I mean, Jacob Collier is a genius and I had to kind of keep my, keep my cool and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> no worries. What? So then I was fangirling on him and it was just incredible. But I think also having that history of of knowing those boys when they were a fan of Neighbours and they were on the precipice of greatness, it's just it's just a really nice, sweet thing that they did that for me because um, it was pretty extraordinary to be asked and I'm very grateful. So fame wasn't an overnight thing for you and it sure as hell hasn't always been there has it? Yeah, I think the difficult parts have actually been blessings. For example, I was on Neighbours for two years. I then was trying to get a record deal in Melbourne and people wanted to put me in girl bands and I was giving them demos of Sean Colvin, Diamond in the Rough, which is like (laughs) at the age of what, 
16. And I was like, oh, you know what, they just don't take me seriously. That You know, they just don't. <laughs> and, of course, I was too young to be singing those songs, but my heart was, you know, wanting to be Sean Colvin or Tori Amos or something like that. <laughs> so I thought I'll have to wait till I'm older. I mean, the ego. And then uh, I went to the UK and was so famous. It's hard to appreciate um, the level of fame because of neighbours. And they were two years behind as far as it airing. So I didn't have to work for two years. I had was, you know, doing appearances and riding this fame wave while I was still on TV. But once that finished and I couldn't get a work permit as an actor, things got tough and I was just partying and kind of, you know, trying to figure myself out. And How old were you in this, at this time? How old were you now? So I would have been like 18, 19. Wow. It was the first time in my life where things hadn't just gone my way. There'd been a flow to how things happened for me. As you well know, we were at McDonald's College together. I wasn't studying. I was, you know, skipping school with Echo, Kaha, and it got to six months in and I realised I'm going to fail because I haven't been doing the work and I don't like to fail. I was doing extras work thanks to Melissa Thomas getting me her agent, so I suddenly had jobs coming in. So, yeah, basically... Melissa Thomas, my friend, had introduced me to her agent. So I suddenly had a Sydney agent. I mean, little girl from the Central Coast. So I was getting getting booked for extras work. Um, Big time. Yeah. And I was earning money. So I just said to my mum, school's getting in the way of these jobs. (laughs) Maxine, a school teacher. Yeah, halfway through year 11. I'm leaving. You can't stop me. And so then... You know, there were a few commercials, Twisties being the big one, and then I got offered the guest appearance on Neighbours. My point being that things had gone my way. You know, you drop out of school and Mm. it works out and you end up on a TV show. So when I went to England, I just thought things go my way. I ran out of money. The fame dwindled. The friends fell away, which if you listen Mm. to the song City on Left of the Middle because it's 25 years of Left of the Middle, you know, there was a disillusionment, a sadness of realising that, oh, my gosh, you know, this can fall away. This is, not a, this is not something that you get and you keep. And people I thought were my friends are only my friends because of fame. But that's such a gift in this industry to have that before I got my record deal and went into music because then when it all comes flooding back, you're really, you have a really good gauge of, if you have your feet on the ground. So I think it wasn't overnight, but I I did the hard yards and that's when I did a lot of the songwriting and put the hard work in. But I was I was too grand in debt to my landlord when I signed that record deal and I had to leave the country the next day because my visa had run out. And I had a kind of it was like a weird, I started having panic attacks when I got to Australia because I, I was like imposter syndrome. I've got the deal. I'm going to be okay, but I can't do this. What, ha- what happened then? You're back on the plane. You come, well, I couldn't go in back Australia. into the UK because I was waiting for my visa. So I was, I was yeah. like my, all my family and everyone's going, you've done it. And, it was like, and I was going, 
absolutely <laughs> terrified. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't believe they've given me this deal. I mean, I did have lots of songs, but it's like, you know, I just didn't feel good enough. So then I had, to, I got flown to Los Angeles to songwrite while I was waiting for the visa to come through. And I thought, I've made it. I'm in Los Angeles. I was in some <laughs> shitty apartment where the bed was pulled out from the wall, but I was like, I've made it. This is it. <laughs> and so fond memories of learning the craft. I mean, all of those people that I worked with, Phil Thornally, Mark Goldenberg, to name a few on that first album, taught me how to write songs and how to do vocals and, yeah. The music industry is challenging, you know, finding the perfect balance between fulfilment as an artist and, and creating music for your audience and the common sense of running a smooth and successful career. I've seen you through that. I've watched it, but I also was part of the time that you took a very big break from music until the point where you released Firebird. What was that time about? Well, I went through a really hard time and... <clears throat> Um, the music industry was changing with streaming and downloads and everything. So the label I was with was dissolving. I got inherited by three different people. Then they don't have ownership over you, so they want to change you. It was a time where I was trying to be known as easy to work with because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd always been very much like, you know, I'm doing it like this and, and I was, I guess, trying to be amenable to everyone. And as an artist, the lesson I learned, nobody knows you like you know you. And sometimes you have to have those tough conversations. And I wasn't having them. So I was handing my power over and my artistry over and letting people dumb down an amazing album I did with Ben Hillier. And so because I let too many people take control of that in the end, you know, I had this album with three Coldplay co-writes on it and the, and Island Records dropped me. <laughs> and I was so confused in my brain. I was like, how can this happen? And you could put it down to so many different factors, but my feeling was the universe is trying to tell me something, like I'm, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I think there's a lot of courage sometimes when you feel like you're swimming upstream to just walk away. Like, does that mean I gave up or was I really unsure if I was, you know, I just thought I've got other things I want to do. I want to study acting. And I think it was very courageous because, you know, financially, all of those reasons. But I'd lost the joy. I'd lost the confidence. And I had to go and do that for my soul. So I went to L.A. and basically that didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I went to LA, I, I made lifelong friendships, I studied with Ivana Chubbuck. I'm so grateful to have learnt so much about the craft of acting because I think because of how my career started, that's something I didn't get to do. And no, I didn't land a big break, but I made a decision that there's so many people here in Hollywood. I was at a point in my life where I didn't have 10 years in me of that drive and it wasn't as much fun as this gift that I had that just seemed so natural and easy. So in a way, sometimes if you allow yourself to walk away from possibly what is what you're destined to do, 
when you come back to it, it's just incredible. So that's what happened for me. So a recalibration period, a period of kind of take stock, where am I at? What's right for me? But I still had writer's block because, as you know, <laughs> I was trying to start a family and that was a five-year a five journey. And if I look back now, the block was the fact that I wasn't at peace. That was something that was so important to me. And so the moment my child was growing in my tummy, suddenly the creativity flowed. I always believed that you would do the best, your best work once you became a mother. And, I mean, you're proving it time and time again. I mean, the audiences just love you, don't they? They just eat up your sound. <laughs> they find security in it. That's a nice thing to say. I think it's true. I, I, I think a lot of the times when um, you post a little something on my socials, people go, wow, we will always like what she did because, or what she does because she was there at a really significant moment in our lives with that song. They have this intimate connection with you at a particular moment in time. And I, and I would say that would be across the world. Don't you think? I've, I've realised that I'm not the best singer. Like I can't trill to save my life. Do you know what trilling is? No, it's please what, tell it's us. What, it's what Mariah does. Hey, all that. Can't do it. I'm quite a basic <laughs> singer. <laughs> and I'm not the best songwriter, but I've learnt that what I think I'm good at is going into the emotion of what I'm singing about and making you feel that feeling. And once I realised that that in itself is enough, it, it made it a lot easier because that's, that's a gift to be able to do that. It's funny you say that the security guy who was looking after me at Coldplay, he was ginormous and he said, you want to know a story? He said, 15 years ago my heart was broken and your song saved my life and got me through. And I was like, oh, don't say that. I've just done my makeup. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> it's Wembley. <laughs> it's not Gosford Shopping Centre. <laughs> I've come a long way from coming down an escalator singing True Blue at uh, True Story at Gosford Shopping Centre. That was a talent quest. I didn't win, but my mum made me a beautiful dress for that one. Oh, we'll talk lots and lots and lots about your mum in a minute because I've got some wonderful notes and, and, and stories around her. Um, I, I do want to talk about the elephant in the room, and that's Torn. It's been around for 25 years. Mm-hmm. This it's year, congratulations. Elephant. I don't see it as an elephant at all. You don't? It's never been an issue for me. If you look at all my albums apart from Firebird, there's two or three covers on it and everyone else is making such a fuss about it. If you look at most people in the charts, at the top of the charts, most of them haven't written some of their biggest hits, you know? Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is like Frank Sinatra, didn't write his songs. Like that's not necessarily what is amazing about the connection of that song, that I wrote it or didn't write it. Um, It's about, you know, that I made it my own. And so because I'm so comfortable with that, everybody else was tripping. And you know what? (laughs) I had to deal with that whole thing because Chris Evans, this radio DJ, kind of made a big fuss about it and said I was a liar and blah, 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 because I wouldn't go out for dinner with him. But, you know, he started that whole, 
oh my God, she's tried to hide the fact. So that's where it stemmed from originally, which he has apologised. He apologised to me in a pub after that. <laughs> and he also got me on TFI Friday and, and talked about this whole thing. He said, we had a bit of a fight, didn't we? It was like on TV, you can find the footage. And so that was at the start of my career. Then it kind of went away and then some guy, because the next generation fell in love with the song, some guy, oh, God, if I could find that guy, he posted a <laughs> meme and it was a guy looking at his mobile phone and it said, um, the feeling you get when you find out Natalie and Brilliant didn't write Torn <laughs> and it trended on Twitter and I was like, you're effing kidding me and I had to go through the whole thing again. So then it was like all these young kids were like, what do you mean she didn't write it? And they're like, <laughs> devastated. I'm like, guys, seriously, get over it. It's you all over. There's not one bit of it that's not you. I think people want to believe that I wrote it because of how much I made it my own. And so that's where they're like, you know. Do you think it matters? Do you think it do you to think me, it matters no. you, Yeah, right. That's, but also it's an interesting conversation because – it's not easy. I mean, I would happily put covers on my album, and I have done except for Firebird. Um, I did a whole album of covers. <laughs> but it's not as easy Is that males? as you. Male, yeah. Yeah. Not males. Easy to Male, tiger. male. <laughs> I told you she wasn't vanilla. <laughs> <sighs> um, uh, it's not as easy as you think to find a cover song that you can make your own. I mean, I get, I've been sent songs all the time when I make albums and, and if it doesn't feel like me or even in a songwriting session, if I'm working with a, a songwriter and they're coming up with a lyric that's somehow related to their breakup and it doesn't make sense to me, I'm very much the director of the story of the song because that's the most important thing to me. I'm like, I would never say that. That doesn't resonate with me. So whether it's, every lyric is mine or not, you're still directing the emotional intent of what you're doing and, you know, you're still the director of your show and I think that's where the authenticity comes in about the story that you're telling and I'll always be old-fashioned like that in that I love a body of work that has an arc and a story and I think we're in a world now where people put out singles. Not saying I won't just put out songs as well, but I'll always have that need to have a body of work like a window in time and that's what people say is it's like you know they've grown up with me or it the songs remind them of a time and that's not unique to me that's just the power of of music that we can bookmark I'm sure Saba you've got albums as do I that I can't listen to because they remind me of someone like there's a Joni Mitchell album that reminds me of a particular guy that I was crushing hard on (laughs) and so (laughs) I find it difficult even now to listen to because it's those those teenage years where, where the angst and the heartbreak, you know, is so palpable. I remember one of the, the band members of In Excess playing me rainbow sleeves while I was in Chicago on tour with that band, sitting at a window and it was snowing and I heard that song. So it's like the power of music to hold on to memories and times and it's just it's a beautiful thing having said that though to be named number one hit of the 90s by rick dees is is quite a big deal and 
you, you bring up, you really do bring us so much joy. Actually, you bring me so much joy in the supermarket when I'm shopping. There I am with my trolley and there's your little voice coming on the road. <laughs> there's our friend. And it's always when I happen to walk past the bananas or the eggplants <laughs> that that torn song comes on. It must be Australian think, oh. shopping centres. I get so many shopping centre videos sent from my friends in Australia. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like down in the supermarkets. So Nat, I want to, I want to start with your first food memory. Okay. Um, Sunday lunch at Nonna and Nonna's Concrete Jungle Garden in La Kemba. Some of my happiest memories um, were going to Sydney for the weekend to spend time with Nonna and Nonna and all of our relatives. And, um, you know, my father's Italian, my mum's Australian, and she's from Inverell up north, so kind of two very different cultures, you could say. So when, when I was a kid and I would go to their house, you know, it was so Italian. And so, and I, I loved it, but there was a kind of a like a passion and a kind of a fieriness that when you were a little kid, I was like, oh my God, you know, like my <laughs> nonna would kiss me like really hard and squeeze me so tight and, and, you know, they'd be talking in Italian and because my dad immigrated to Australia when he was four and spoke dialect, he didn't talk Italian at home. So I would think everyone's having an argument and they're saying pass the bread. And so... <laughs> later on I found out I'm actually 46% Sicilian but when I was a kid I was like what is all of this and it's like it's so full on and da 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 and um memories food wise were a massive pot that my nonna would have on the on on the stage uh of the pasta sauce that would be just cooking for hours and I remember did you say stage or the or the stove did I say stage Oh, I you did. said stage. Oh my god, that's embarrassing. <laughs> that's yeah. no, that's no, not really. That says a lot about Nonna, the performer. The performer. <laughs> Nonna was 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 in her kitchen. That was her stage. Her and stage. On her stove. Wow. On her stove. Start stove. On her burner. How is my accent today? Is it English or Australian? Perfect. Is Perfect. It it's it's a it's a lovely hybrid of both. Hybrid. Oh, god. That's, <laughs> that's what I. That's what I really didn't want. <laughs> it's perfect. Anyway, she, I remember her looking into the pot and saying, ooh, what's that? And, and it was pork. She had, like, pork in the pasta sauce, which would, wouldn't get served but was, like, you know, would just be going for hours and hours and hours and and um, we'd have this massive feast of pasta and cotoletti and all of these eggplant dishes and, and, and Nonna was always, like, you know, forcing you to have seconds and come on, you're so skinny, you gotta eat, you gotta eat. Like that was her thing. <laughs> Food was love, you know, and then there would be the fruit would come out and then that's really strong smell of, of espresso coffee and cards and they'd be playing cards. And in the back garden, my, my nono had built in the middle of the Kemba, like it was surrounded by cement, but there was this rectangle, this massive area of a vegetable garden, which would be quite hip now, but at the time it wasn't the done thing. And, and you know, really tall stalks and like this uh, pathways zigzagging through these beautiful, you like know, tomato. Yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, he'd be showing and I'd be thinking, yeah, okay, it's vegetables. <laughs> and now I look back and think, oh, my gosh, you know, the love and time he dedicated to this veggie garden 
and we would always have the watermelon outside because it's messy. So we'd go outside and Nuno would give us lemon granita and so we'd have our lemon granita and we'd get brain freeze and then we would have the the watermelon and we'd all be like, you know, eating these wedges of watermelon, spitting the pips out and it's just a beautiful food memory for me. How many how many people were at these feasts and all the, how many people were at the sleepovers? Because when my family as children, as we all had sleepovers, we were like twenty twenty five in a house in a three or four bedroom home. We were all asleep on the floor. I remember one aunt, she didn't have enough pillows and my cousins used to complain that they, they used to have to sleep on um uh robes like Oh my god, and, towels. They, they had towels and they would have button imprints Marks in their head in when their... they woke up in the morning. <laughs> That's so cute. It was, I'm not staying at that auntie's place because she makes you sleep on the robbers. No, you are. Like, we're going. We rarely rarely stayed overnight. So there there would be about uh, roughly 10, but then kind of sometimes after lunch all the relatives would come. And it was just amazing. It was just, you know, all my aunties and uncles and cousins and everything. But there was always that one room that you weren't allowed into that had plastic over the couch, <laughs> you know, you know. And so as a kid, you'd 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 sneak in. It was like taboo. You weren't meant to be in there, and you're like looking at all the ornaments and everything's covered in plastic. And I just remember Nonna's doilies. She used to she used to crochet the doilies that would sit in the bathroom on top of the back of the toilet and by the sink and really. Yeah, just beautiful. Do you remember the last meal that you had of hers? Oh, it was always just the pasta. I mean, if if I was if if I was on a desert island and, and I had, to, I always say that my my final meal would be just a, a penne pasta, mild arrabbiata possibly, but just pasta to me, if I'm feeling down or whatever, is my go to comfort food. I just love it. And I miss my nonna's pasta because no one makes a pasta like she made pasta. Let's talk about dad for a second. So dad, dad's a bit of an ingenious, creative character, isn't he? I mean, he's had, he's done a a bucket of stuff. Well, he came to Australia when he was four and had to leave school to work for his parents at the fruit and veg shop. So everything my dad did, I think he studied screen printing at TAFE so that like he's always had that creative streak then he got into music but as you know obviously to to feed the kids he had his own businesses whether it was the news agency or then later on the plant nursery but even within that he was doing making bonsai he used to create the most beautiful bonsai I tried to get him back into it later on and he was like no no but um, I think you know he still very much has a love and a joy for singing. He's got a little singing group um, and they go and sing at nursing homes and things. And I often wonder how much of what we decide to do in life is destiny because to me I thought it was destiny. But, you know, the impressions from your parents. Your destiny to be a performer. Yeah, like you think that's what I was born to do. But I've sometimes wondered what if there's a part of me that picked up on my dad's unfulfilled want of being a performer? I don't have the answer. I just think it's a really interesting thing to ponder because he was always singing, you know. The, my love of the carpenters, of the Beatles, comes from my dad's love of music. 
he was like singing Peter, Paul and Mary songs and he loved the Seekers and, yeah, I do think that plays a part in it. He's, he's very, very proud that I do that. What was he telling his friends when you, you were first on Neighbours? Oh, my God, I have no idea. I don't know if he was that impressed by Neighbours. It was the music that he the was more impressed by. The music that got him. And my family were never, I mean, honestly, they were like, you're one of four children, get over yourself. <laughs> so I don't, I, don't, I don't have braggy parents at all. Um, if anything, my mum was like, you do dancing, you're not doing singing as well, you're just copying off Lee Belcher down the street. Hi, Lee. Um, <laughs> so mum always tried to kind of keep me focused on one thing and also couldn't afford for me to indulge all these things. So he would sing with his little choir group and your mum, Maxine, would do all the catering. Was that right? Oh, my gosh. He still does it. <laughs> so so they come round on a, a Wednesday, I don't know if it's every week, the other guys, like the other singers, and um, he's quite bossy, I think, in the little choir group, you know, like he takes charge. But my mum would spend days making like, you know, uh, chicken spring rolls and homemade sausage rolls. She wouldn't just go buy them. She'd be making all these like it's a banquet. And and I've I've got this as well. Like I'm I'm a nervous host, and I go above and beyond. And that's my mum. She's like stressed for days, and she's in the kitchen. And but that's my mum's love language. I think my mum shows love through doing. And I think from a very young age, my mum went above and beyond with, you know, driving me to Sydney for two hours and waiting in her car with my sister Michelle in the car, sorry, Michelle, (laughs) (laughs) while I, so that I could work with Robin Dixon and this, this teacher that was in Sydney, you know, so that I could, you know, progress my career. So I think that's the way my mum showed love and she gave me my discipline and my never give up attitude. So from your dad, how much of your Italian identity comes from him? All of it. I'm incredibly proud. I remember at the start of my career they talked about changing my name or simplifying it and I was like over my dead body. I've always been incredibly proud of of my my heritage and you know as as you you can testify to there's a lot of racism in our country growing up subtle and laughed off it was like okay to kind of laugh and joke about people that were different I remember thinking um gosh I've got to squeeze lemon in my hair because basically these were our options Saba we were either a surfer surfer doodle chick right or yeah. or a goth. It felt like you had to choose one of those. There was nothing was there. Things, and oh you gosh. had to try and fit in. And that's just small town. I mean, and I love you know beach culture and how I grew up. But um, you know, I do think that you know there was a lot of that that racism running through because anything that's different when you're a kid in a small town individuality and differences weren't really celebrated but then as you get older these are the things that you champion about yourself so it's just it's just the school of hard knocks isn't it and they're drivers and they stay with you you can actually either do one or two of two things with them you either use them to grow or you let them just kind of be a thing for you and then they just stunt you but back to back to your your culture and your heritage I want to I want to 
I want you to relive with me the time you performed for Sophia Loren. I love this story. Do you remember that? Oh. Oh, my gosh. I was in Russia and I didn't know she was going to be there. I mean, have you ever had a moment you want to redo? You want to redo. You want to redo. So So I go on stage and I'm looking at Sophia Loren, this woman that I just wanted, I mean, she was Italian and she was a movie star and people were like, you look like a young Sophia Loren. So she was this god to me. Actually, and actually, I'm going to interrupt you. You look like a young Sophia Loren with a little bit of punky Brewster shoved in there <laughs> for, to rough up the edges. Exactly. <laughs> Not quite as Sophia. Um, as Sophia. 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 Anyway, anyway. So, I mean, yeah, there's lots of people there, but I'm singing just to her, just to her. And I, I said to my manager, whatever happens, I have to meet Sophia Loren and I never do this, like rarely in my life. There's been very few times where I've said, I need that photo. I really need to get a photo with her. (laughs) So the guy we were with, it was part of her team and was like, yeah, let me go up and speak to them. So imagine there's a circle table like at the front of this gala (laughs) dinner and everyone's around, (laughs) everyone's around the table wanting to see her. But I obviously... I know how it's done. You ask the person to get permission and they take you over. So that's what was happening. And she puts her hand out and I'm holding her hand and she's trying to compliment me on my performance. And like a psycho, I'm going, yeah, 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 like look at the camera. Like don't miss the shot. So I'm kind of not taking in the compliment because I'm so scared that we're not going to get the picture. And then she looked at me like, Ugh. you know, like that's disappointing. And you then, should never meet your idol. Oh, well, no, it was me that stuffed up. She was amazing and I just totally had a, like lost myself as people sometimes, you know, when people have come up to me and they get verbal diarrhoea and say weird things. That's what I did. I was like, yeah, 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 photo, camera, like pointing and then walked away and was like, I can't believe I just... I can't believe it. I could, I, I, it's the most embarrassing ever. I got the shot though. You got the shot perfect. I'm going to post it. Have you ever had the opportunity? That's awful. Have you ever had the opportunity to 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 meet her again to kind of correct that? No. No. And I'm sure if ever someone asked her, she'd say that girl's awful. Send her away. <laughs> She was saying, you know, I did this lovely performance and I just could not be present to take it in because I was so starstruck. <laughs> just awful. I was just going, yep, 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 like pointing as if like I have to get the shot. And then you realise when people come up to you and you feel like a piece of meat, like they, they could just be having like, you know, they just they really want the picture. So <laughs> oh, we've all done it. We've all done it. Let's move into your second food memory. Your mother's love language is food. We touched on this a little bit earlier. Now, one of my first visuals of Maxine's cookery, and I'm going to let you expand on this, uh, was her, is her Christmas pavlova. Uh, I've never, ever, ever had pavlova as good as my mum's. She makes the most incredible pavlova, and, and we think there's a little bit of magic in my nonna's, uh, is it a, a copper dish that she makes it in? 
but it's it's soft crunchy on the outside and chewy on the inside and it's oh the cream is really sweet and light but not too sweet and she just perfectly because she's OCD like me perfectly slices the fruit and does the lines of the you know the kiwi fruit and the passion fruit and and the strawberries and the banana and you're like and the banana and you're like you don't put banana on pavlova and I say says who who puts who puts a refreshing banana on pavlova? I mean, that's like pineapple on pizza, which you love. I'm down with that. I'm down with the Hawaiian pizza back in the day. I, I mean, I don't have them anymore, but I, that used to be my favourite. What's wrong with why? Where? Where is the rule book that says you can't put? I would banana like on to pavlova? open this discussion up to the World Wide Web. Yes. So please DM DM Nat and tell <laughs> her your thoughts. Did your mum learn? Any cooking tips from her mother-in-law? I actually don't know. My mum, I don't, I think she was usually in recipe books. I don't recall, probably cotoletti and and certain things that Nonna did, um, mum would make for dad. But, you know, my mum hates fish, the smell of it, almost like she can't eat it. She cooked fish for the family her whole life, even though she hated it, because that's my mum's love language. We used to have the most amazing lamb cutlets that she put cornflakes, crushed cornflakes on and, and fry. Oh. oh, they were my favourite. Have you ever done that? No, but I'm going to tomorrow. Oh, my God. Cornflakes on lamb cutlets. That was one of my faves. Um, oh, her stir fries, her homemade spring rolls, chicken spring rolls. You know, she was just always, always cooking. Do you remember my rainbow sandwiches, though? Yes, they were really thick, really, really thick sandwiches. And they had, tell us about them. They had beetroot and carrot and blah, blah, blah. Well, when I was, we were going to McDonald College, it was obviously a two-hour train journey. And so there mum. and back. Do you remember? Yes. There well, no wonder we every day. No wonder we got no work oh. done. Well, no. I didn't. And I remember you used to eat apple. Like, we'll go back to your sandwich in a minute. But you used to eat green apple and it used to get under your perfect manicure and you'd be forever digging out the green apple from under your nails. That. I still do that. Still it's like a nervous twitch. Still I don't know. <laughs> and floss my teeth. I get that from my mum. But I remember once on the train um, we were talking really, really loudly and you were talking about your nails and the apple and it was a packed train and this undercover inspector, train inspector, came, do you remember this, flashed no. a badge and said, this is a quiet cabin oh, and no. we don't want to hear about your nail problems. And we were like. <laughs> <laughs> i tell I'll you what, forget. though, the train journeys, the train journeys were, you know, the best part of that. <laughs> that whole six months of school for me. But my mum would make these rainbow sandwiches. So it was grated beetroot, grated cucumber, grated cheese and very thinly sliced lettuce. I think that's it. And they looked stunning on white bread and she'd cut them and they just looked like a rainbow. And everyone on the train wanted my sandwich. And sometimes because I was like, trying not to eat quite frequently back then because, you know, that was what we were all doing. And I would give my sandwich away thinking, yep, I'm not going to eat today. And then by the time I'd get to Strathfield, I was buying chocolates at the, uh, the thing. So peppermint funny. crisps. They were your peppermint thing. Peppermint crisps. Remember? Yes. Yeah, peppermint yeah. crisps. I, I, I mean, my mum would be horrified to know how many rainbow sandwiches I gave away. So there were 
four girls, in four sisters, four daughters in your family, weren't there? Yeah. The eldest is Carla. Yeah. And then you're number two. Mm-hmm. Then? Michelle and Laura. I think Maxine deserves the medal of the Order of Australia having to put up with the four of you. I mean, let's talk about the times that you used to sneak out and say, I'm going out to so-and-so's party for a house for a sleepover, and then there'd be word that the mothers would all speak. And then you'd be, you'd end up in some sort of blue light disco or some oh sort of God. house party. No, we were, and then sleeping, she'd turn we, were, up. we were sleeping in a car at the beach in Nora Head. I'll never forget that. It was awful. It was just awful. I mean, I was just really <laughs> awful. I think they <laughs> were she quite. she turn up with a photo? Yeah. Apparently one time, basically, we'd all said we were going to different places and we just kind of, we didn't do anything that bad. We were just like with each, hanging with each other and we kind of crashed out in the car by the beach and someone came up to the window and knocked on the window. I think it might have been Narelle's brother and said, you're all in trouble, like your parents are back at Sunset's house. And we just went white. And apparently my mum was going around parties in Nora Head with a photo of me saying, have you seen my daughter? But oh, you know what? As a parent, I think I could, like would be the same. Can you imagine the terror? I had no concept of that. But mum and dad were very strict and some of my friend's parents weren't quite as strict. And for some people that worked and for me, I rebelled. I was like, it made me go the other way. Oops. So there was a lot of apologies to my parents when I moved to Melbourne and was having to kind of support myself and learn how to pay the rent and I... I was doing lots of self-help courses because I was such a spiritual kid and I remember calling them up and saying, I'm just calling to say I love you. And they were like, okay, should we be worried? (laughs) And I just want to apologise for this, that and the other. I mean, yeah. So your last food memory is pistachio granita on Lipity, your father's birth (gasps) island. So... I'd always heard about Lipari, I'd never been, and I was doing a show in Calabria and I just just randomly said to the promoter or the driver or someone, how far is Lipari from here? And they're like, oh, you can just get a boat over. I've got a boat. And I was like, you've got a boat? Why are you driving me? (laughs) I was like, how come my driver to the gig, he's like, oh, I just do this in my summer job. I think it was some probably mafiosa guy who wanted to meet me because he had a really fancy car. <laughs> anyway, next thing you know, he's taking – I had my friend Sam with me and I said to everyone, everyone you know, if I don't come back, call the police because, like, this, this guy has got a boat, is taking me. And I rang my dad from the boat. I'm like, you're not going to believe it. I'm on my way to, to the islands. And he had a bottle of Cristal and me and my girlfriend Sam – She'd just lost her mum. I'll never forget. We got to where you couldn't see land behind and you couldn't see land in front and suddenly a pod of dolphins came. It was the most magical, beautiful moment for her because she'd just, you know, been through this big thing and um, it was just incredible. And so we had that moment and then we got to the island and I was like these volcanic islands started appearing and I thought, I understand my father's love of, of, of the sea, of fishing. Uh, he pretty much grew up in Atlantis. I mean, there's more water than land. Imagine growing up in mm. a group of islands where it's majority water. 
that's going to have a big impression on your connection with nature. And I really understood my dad. And um, it was really funny because we, we pulled up. I've got relatives that own restaurants at the port of Lippery, but we pulled around the back of the island and, you know, within half an hour it had got back to Nonna somehow in Australia and I was in trouble because I got out at the wrong port and it was the wrong cafe and I was meant to be, you know, the Italian thing. I was like, what? I'm in the wrong place. And I, was, I didn't know. But years later, um, going back to the island, um, I've got family that own the fish restaurant when you pull into Lippery called Al Pescatore. And um, another family uh, member who owns the, my auntie Maria's brother owns the gelato shop. So, um, Sia Teresa and so so it's just been amazing it's it's a place that I I now go to where the only place I'll eat vongolay is there it's incredible the vongolay pasta the oh. food is just amazing they have this like it's like a fish carpaccio that it's a little bit cured with really fresh vegetable on the side it's really clean yummy beautiful food and I ate in a lot of restaurants while I was there and I'm not just saying this, but their food is just incredible and it's the only place that I'll eat vongolese there. People often say to me, what are your three food memories? And one of mine is from the island of Lipari. My my ex-partner, his father, is his, both his parents are from there and we went to visit one day and so he has a couple of cousins, male cousins, and the cousin's wife, I mean, he was very handsome, my ex, and the male cousin's wife were just fawning all over him so they couldn't stop cooking for him. Anyway, Aww. this one particular meal that they made for us, I promise you I'll take it to the to the grave as a memory. It'll be my last supper meal. It's white rabbit. Sorry, everyone. Bugs. Bunny. It was a <laughs> white rabbit. Um, it was steamed first and then roasted. And she did it with um, green grapes, uh, handmade verjuice, celery, and we ate it with these steamed white potatoes. It was the oh, best goodness. meal. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, I, I don't, like you said, I don't think I ever had a bad meal there. Everything is just, is, is, is quite beautiful. And just that, you know, the fact that that, that was my, that's my roots and my family and to discover it late in life and eventually be there with my, with my mum and dad and, you know, my, my uncle Steve one time was there with us with Aunty Jenny and, and, and Donna and Lee, my cousins and their kids. And we had the most incredible time eating at the restaurant and Tia Felicia who um was just like you know the matriarch would come down and super stylish and it just the most beautiful memories and then next door is where um the other family member so my so my uncle Joe's married to Anna Maria it's her brother that's got the the gelato shop so we'd Ooh. eat at that restaurant and then we go next door and pistachio granita, I mean, it's just, it's so creamy. What's in granita compared to ice cream? It's not ice. It's just ice. It's just and ice, but sugar syrup. It but it's, might, it's shocking no. because it's like you can't believe it's not, it's full of sugar, but you can't believe that there's not some kind of dairy in it because it's so creamy. Mm. Um, and uh, my friend Luca Del Bono actually opened a restaurant in Kensington with some of these dishes. And so I was able to to get this pistachio granita in London. But, yeah, I would say it's it's up there. I remember one more thing, walking through the cobblestone streets of Lippery 
we walked past a patisserie and my dad said, you know, that's where Uncle Angelo learnt to make pastries. It's just crazy, you know, to think that all the way in Australia and that's what he did there and my dad's showing me this is where it all started. So, What, what does it feel like when you put your feet on the ground there? Does it, does it feel like this is where I belong, this is where I've come from? It's very hard to explain, but it's it's in my it's in my DNA because I didn't have an overly Italian environment in my home. I did when I went to Sydney, but because Mum's mm. Australian and Dad stopped, Dad only spoke a dialect and kind of didn't speak it at home with Mum or with us. It's bizarre to go to a country where I feel so at home, and it's also to do with uh, the way we express ourselves and the fieriness and the passion, and it can be too much for some people. And when I'm in Italy, I feel they get me. <laughs> I want to move now on to your social cause, Flackstock. Yes. Tell us about Flackstock. It was a TV presenter called Caroline Flack who... Do you have Love Island in Australia? We do, yeah. So she was the host of that and she was a very beloved TV personality and that wasn't the first job she did. She'd been working for years in television and, and, and was kind of at the peak of her career. And um, there were some dramas that went down and um, unfortunately Caroline took her own life. Um, and a doc- documentary was made by her family before Flaxstock that touched on the fact that she had been suffering with mental illness and it's something that she'd kept hidden and didn't want her bosses to know and everything. So um, there was a lot more to the story that we found out once that documentary came out. But um, I didn't know her personally, but I'd come across her in the industry. And what struck me about her was uh, she's a girl's girl. I talk about this a lot in the industry. Um, you know, there's women that support other women and there's there's women that feel threatened. And I'm I'm such a supporter of women. And she was one of those girls that I would see and we would just have each other's back. And she was always, she had this incredible laugh. And, and so she made an impression on me and she lit up the screen. So uh, it kind of struck a chord for all of us here. Like, how could this happen? And how could we let this happen, you know? So I think one of her best friends, Natalie Pinkham, had a dream that she was at a festival with Caroline and got up the next day and was like, rang her mum or her sister, Caroline was a twin, and said, you know, I think we should try and do a festival. So that's where Flaxstock was created and I was asked to perform at it. And we had the most incredible, in fact, they just had a documentary out, which I haven't seen yet, Um, but we had, it was just a beautiful day of, of, you know, celebrating Caroline, but also raising awareness uh, for mental health. And there were a lot of incredible organisations, Choose Love, uh, Mind, Samaritans, Charlie Waller Trust, all of these for raising awareness for mental health and raising funds. So I'm hoping that that festival continues uh, and and I was just thrilled to have been a part of it. Just before we finish, you've spoken about it right through our chat today and you've always been a spiritual person and your belief system 
has carried you through some difficult times. How does, how does music heal? Wow, that's such a big question. I think what it's done for me when I was young, and I think about albums, I sat there back in the day when you'd, you know, pull out the booklet from the CD and you'd actually read the, the lyrics as you're listening to the song for the first time. I think in someone pouring their heart out when they're lonely makes you feel not alone. And so I think for an artist to go inside themselves and share those things um, makes people feel that they're understood, that they're heard, that they're not alone. Um, but then there's the other side of it where it's pure love and joy and you go to a Coldplay concert or something and you're like, <laughs> you know, it's just pure ecstasy and collective energy and, uh, you know, so it can be different things for different people and that's what's so beautiful about it. Some people want to sit in their bedroom and go into those dark places through music and they feel better. Some people can't understand that. Like, what are you talking about? That's depressing music. But, you know, for some people... Elliot Smith has kind of saved their life. So I think it really, you know, you find your people and it's just, it's just a friend and it's also tied to memories of time. That's what I think is beautiful. It's like a soundtrack, isn't it, to your life. So you have different tastes and things that I was into back then are too depressing for me now that I'm a mum. So what I choose to listen to and... I'm a bit more wary of, of diving into dark places and wallowing. Um, but there's a time for that too. So it's just a powerful medium and it, it overcomes, I, it, it supersedes culture, language, religion. That's also what's beautiful about it. I mean, <laughs> on, a, on a lighter note, do you remember that talent show where that woman singing that Mariah Carey song and getting the words completely wrong? Oh my God. <laughs> Can leave a I mean, come on. You don't need to know the words. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just to lighten the mood. Hey, um, so I just, you're in Aussie, British, Italiana. Where is home? Everywhere is home. I mean, Australia's just as much home to me. My family's there nature for me my favorite place my kind of spiritual bolt hold is is Australia particularly Byron have a connection with the earth there for some reason um but I've made I've made a home for myself here and that's really special and there's a lot of friends and people that I've connected with here who who left their family there's a bond that you have I talk about finding your universal family your family in the world there's the family you're born into and then there's the family you create and it's as important and so there's a lot of that family and lots of what I call, you know, orphans in the sense that they're not, they don't get to be with their family so we've kind of, we're there for each other. So they're both home. Nat, thank you so much for being part of this. It's, it's a huge gift that you have um, and everyone, everyone, everyone is, is, is really lucky to have you in there in their, what do you call those things? Your, their Spotify's, their music files, whatever they are. I would have, was about to say CD collection. Um, you do. <laughs> you, bring, you bring so much joy to the world and you've done such a, a wonderful thing with your skill and your craft. And I wish you all the very best. 
I'm I'm so thrilled that you've Thanks, taken man. an interest in me as a friend. Um, I'm just because great. whenever I'm I'm just grateful to have a job, and you have been like such a solid support. Sometimes it's it's fun to have a friend on the other side of the world with the time difference. The chats we have just crack <laughs> me up and get me through my day. So yeah, thank you, especially with all that the time that I was going through when I was you know wanting to become a parent and everything, you were a real major support for that. So I'm grateful for that. Actually, to be quite honest, and I, I will say this, um, going through my own family preparations, I was just oblivious to it. It was just one thing after another. And I just, I didn't really soak anything in. It wasn't until you were going through yours that I realised the enormity of what of I had what been you did. through. It mm. was, and, you know, I think Mother Nature does that to you. She does that so you can do it again and go back and reprocreate no matter how you choose to have your family. Mm-hmm. We're very blessed. We're very lucky. We are, aren't we? Yeah. We are. This episode of Plated Three Food Memories, I dedicate to all my nearest and dearest who can't sing a night. If you know, you know. Nat's latest album, Firebird, is out now and you can catch up on all her news and tour dates at natalieimbrulia.com. We've got a special live audience recording coming your way in late November with Alice Saslavsky, a.k.a. Alice in Frames. So be sure to have those notifications flicked to the on position. Plated Three Food Memories is made in partnership with World Stories, edited by Lauren McWhirter and original score by Russell Torrance. Don't forget to keep an eye on the Plated Insta accounts to keep up to date with everything Three Food Memories. And we'd love it if you could spread the Plated podcast joy, tell your mates, leave us a review and follow for more. Bye for now and order Kali. Mm-hmm.